Well, Mike, nice to see you tonight. I, I, I appreciate you having the courage to get out, you know, with all the, but as, as, and there's a, there's right, we have a right, we got a right to be concerned about what's going on, you know, staying alert things, but everywhere I go, there, people are everywhere. You go to the mall, ball games, people are out. And so anybody who says, I don't know about going to church, um, I mean, come on. Maybe, maybe, and you don't have to shake hands. Maybe you say, well, I shake people's hands at church. I don't shake people's hands in the mall. Well, then just do this. That's, you know, we've got that. Or don't, and don't touch your face. Or you're, I appreciate you coming tonight. Braving, the, braving all the forecasts and uh, being here this evening. Well, we got started this morning. You know, I've done two out of 52 chapters now. <laughs> so hang on. We're, we're going to do 40 chapters tonight. No, 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 no. Uh, here's kind of my goal. So you, I don't normally do this. I don't want you to know how far behind I am usually, but I'm going to tell you. We're going to start in chapter 2. You can go ahead and turn over there to Jeremiah chapter 2. And um, we're going to go uh, from chapter 2 uh, and try to go through, and I've already done chapter 7, try to go through about chapter 10 in this first session, uh, which, which means I'm not going to be able to cover every section of those 10 chapters, or 9 chapters, or 8 chapters, because we've done two of them in much detail. And then I want to do um, 11 through 20 in the second hour tonight, which I, I can do that. I know I can do that, because I've been doing that. Uh, we'll see how it goes here, uh, how, how much I can get through by the first break. But that's just what you have to do to get through a book this size. So if you think, man, he ran past some really important stuff. Yeah, I, I know. But it's 52 chapters. Did I tell you it's the biggest book in the Bible? <laughs> on the test at, on Wednesday night, that'll be a question. What's the longest book of the Bible? You'll know the answer, right? Jeremiah. So if you've got your outline there, if you'll turn over, and I'm not looking at exactly the same version of it that you are, but if you go to Roman number one was the prophet's commission. You see that? We did that during the Sunday school hour. Then go to Roman numeral two, Judah's unfaithfulness, God's judgment, and the prophet's lament. So we're in this second section. I'd, I'd consider the call like the first section. It's that important. Then 2 through 25 is like section 2, and that's kind of what I'd like to get through by the end of the night. So we're going to go uh, A, under that, idolatry. Now you see that? So chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 5 is a section where he's talking about Judah's idolatry. And I made reference to this in the sermon this morning, but now we're going to get a full dose of this spiritual adultery. So it starts at chapter 2, verse 1. I want you, we're, we're going to highlight these areas where Jeremiah is using the image of marital unfaithfulness to talk about idolatry. And it really plays off this idea as God, as Israel's husband, and Israel as his bride, which carries over into the New Testament idea of uh, the church as the bride of Christ. And so... Um, and so that's how he's going to picture a lot of their idolatry, as spiritual adultery. So listen for that motif. So chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. 
I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his, of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They didn't ask, where's the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where's the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. So did you notice with this, this first image? I remember the devotion of your youth, back there in verse 2. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. So he's saying, do you remember when our relationship was in the honeymoon stage? When, our, when, when we were early in our relationship, going all the way back to me bringing you up out of Egyptian bondage, and then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and I make the covenant with him, and then I led you through the wilderness. He uses that image of going through, you followed me through the wilderness. And, and it's like he's, he's saying, that was when we were sort of in the honeymoon phase. So you kind of know what that is. You know, like when you're still opening the doors for your wife or go around and open the car door sit on the same side of the booth you know at a restaurant a Angie and I were sitting not too long ago at a restaurant on the same side of the booth and the waiter said something about um, my girlfriend or something like that and and we sort of chuckled and and I said we're we're actually married and uh, he's like really married people don't ever sit on the same side of the thing <laughs> And, you know, back there when, um, when all those idiosyncrasies were still cute, you know, and not annoying. <laughs> Since she's not here, I can give some examples. Um, and, and they are still kind of, kind of humorous to me. But uh, Angie goes out to Walmart, wherever, any place that sells things. And if she's not sure what she wants, she just gets them, gets them all, knowing she's going to come home, either if it's clothes, try them on, make a decision later. If it's stuff for the house, she'll try them all in the spot she's got in mind, and then take back all the ones that she doesn't want. Anybody else here do that? Only sometimes she's a little slow about getting the trip back, so the stuff's just kind of piling up that has to be returned to the point that it can be embarrassing taking it back in so we she tried the not but I guess it was about a year ago she had the back of her SUV just packed with stuff that had to go back to Walmart this was over many trips this wasn't just one trip where she these were this was weeks and weeks of stuff piling up that needs to go back to Walmart and she'd go to Walmart get something else and not take back the other so it's just piled up now didn't have time to return it. You know, it's kind of slow sometimes to return stuff. 
So she said, I got to get this stuff returned. I'm running out of time. Like there's a time limit where they won't give you your money back anymore. They might give you a receipt in the store or a coupon in the store, but you don't get your cash back. Well, as it turns out, I think she had like $500 worth of return stuff. And almost all that was past the time. And, and, and so they said, you can only bring back $50 worth of stuff at a time over a certain period, you know. So that meant everything got divided up into smaller return packages. And we had to, like myself and my older son and she, would get in line, separated by other people, not act like we knew each other. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, try to act as if we're as unconnected as possible, you know, pass each other, not even speak, uh, just so they didn't think we were working together here, and ended up getting all that stuff back, $50 worth of stuff at a time, and not cash, but at least store credit, which you'll end up spending. Now, you know, we've been married for like 27 years. Those things were cute. Now, I got to admit, I didn't think that was cute this time when I'm standing in line at Walmart with my $50 worth of stuff multiple times <laughs> to get the $500 worth of stuff returned. You, you remember when it was, you were young in your relationship? And that, that's, what, that's what God says. You know, back when we, we were sort of in the honeymoon phase. And, and then he says, now what's happened? What did I do to your ancestors that now you're filled with idolatry? Now, that's, that's how he starts the image. Now, the, the idea of how that's like unfaithfulness is going to come a little bit later here. So he says, look at verse 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, think about this image of idolatry, of worshiping other gods. You've done two things. You've committed two sins. First, you've forsaken me, the spring of living water. You have to understand how hard it is to find fresh water, drinkable water in this arid climate. When you have a freshwater spring in the ancient world, in the ancient Mediterranean world, it's like you struck gold. And he says, you had that. In your relationship with me, you had this spring of living water. And does that sound familiar? Um, hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, that story about the Samaritan woman. Uh, this is uh, chapter 4, verse 10. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you, do, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And then in chapter 7, you get the same image. 
uh, verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from, from within them. And so you get back, here's the two sins. You've forsaken me, the spring of living water. So you had this fresh water spring, living water. In a, you couldn't put a price tag on that. You had that. And you have exchanged that for what? To dig your own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So most people in the ancient world, they couldn't, they couldn't access any fresh water. So what they did was like build a big basement to capture rainwater, which didn't come that often. And then hopefully the cistern would hold and it would hold enough water that eventually you'd have the water you need to take care of your daily needs. But what often happened with these cisterns that they dug themselves, they would break and the water would leak out, would just seep into the ground. You had a spring of living water and you traded it for broken cisterns. That's a picture of idolatry. When you worship something other than the one true God, you're exchanging a spring of living water for nothing. For water that's going to not quench your thirst, and your cistern probably won't even hold that water. It's, they're not even true gods. Um, and I, I think that's a, that's a beautiful image of idolatry. You've got this spring of living water, fresh water, the very thing you crave, and you exchange it for something that can't, that's not even real and that can't satisfy your thirst. Uh, so, so that's a pretty powerful image, I think. Now, look at verse 20. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds, and you said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. Now here's where you start to get that, that strong image of not only has Israel been unfaithful to, to God. So you might think about like one time you cheated on God and then you come back and say, God, I'm sorry. One time you committed, you worshiped some Assyrian deity uh, that had been brought into your community in Judah. But, but you confess that. So that would be an act of unfaithfulness. But he's saying it's worse than that. He's saying you're more like a prostitute who's just committing this kind of spiritual adultery all the time as a way of life. I'd planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me declares the sovereign lord it reminds me of jesus image of whitewashed tombs on the outside you look good but inside you know like a like a whitewashed tomb like a cleaned up burial spot but inside you're full of dead men's bones here the stain of your guilt how can you say i'm not defiled that i've not run after the baals and baal worship was rampant in israel See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you've done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there. A wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving in her heat. Who can restrain her? Now, how's that for an image? You're like a camel in heat. In your 
desire to worship other gods, which is idolatry, but it's spiritual adultery, so he can use this image of an animal in heat that's just looking for anything to worship. You get the, you get the parallel. Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they'll find her. Um, so it's not very complimentary of their idolatry. Now, as I'm talking about idolatry here, um, people could say, sitting in a church in the 21st century, well, we're not worshiping Baal. We don't have idols in our house fashioned out of stone or wood with eyes and ears that we bow down and worship. That, that would be that kind of overt idolatry that's happening in Israel. But does that really mean we don't have a problem with idolatry? And uh, I think there are many ways to commit idolatry short of fashioning an idol and having it set up on an altar in your house. Idolatry is just valuing something above God. And to know if, if there's any potential idolatry in your life, you, if, if, you, if you've got a calendar, look at your calendar and see where you're devoting the lion's share of your time. Now, I know you've got to work. I understand you're eight to nine, maybe ten hours a day that you're working. I understand. But I'm talking about your other time, the time where you're free to make more choices about what you'll do with your time. What are you doing with that time? Checkbooks, another, uh, I don't know if people write checks much anymore. How about credit card statements? But anywhere you can gauge where you're spending your money, that's a pretty good guide to your spiritual, that's a pretty good spiritual thermometer. Where, where are you investing your finances? And, um, I mean, it's easy to feel conviction about it because it, we're, I think John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. We find idols to worship. We find things to prioritize other than God. And when we do, we're exchanging a, a, a fresh water spring for a broken cistern. And um, I, can, I can confess my own here. Uh, I love sports. Always have. Uh, it's, I can't even tell you why I love sports as much as I love sports. I, I think I give a psychologist, I'm sure, could figure it out. I'm all, it's all wired into my mother and my grandmother, who, I, who loved Kentucky basketball before I knew what a basketball was. Um, my, my father, uh, in those early years when he drank heavily, I think about the only time I felt like we had any connection was maybe watching a sporting event or talking sports, that was one thing my dad was always proud of me about. Uh, not that I was very good, but that I knew a lot about it. So he would call me, now this course was when you had to, you know, hold the phone like this, but I'd get calls late, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night. Now he, he had an apartment in Louisville about four hours away from where we lived in Kentucky, where he drove, that's where his, was the center of his trucking. Uh, his company he drove a truck for was in Louisville, so he would, when he'd get in for like two or three days, he'd just stay there. He'd have to have longer off uh, to come back to, to us, uh, where we lived. So I didn't see him that much. But he would call me from bars 
where he's about drunk, but he's in a debate with somebody about who played cornerback for Dallas and, you know, the Dallas Cowboys in, in 1972. And they're arguing about it. And, of course, you didn't have Google to just check it, so they didn't have any way to know. So he'd call me th and thinking I'd know. And if I knew the answer, I felt like I'd hit, like, a jeopardy, like I was the, you know, because I'd hear him say, you know, to brag, my kid knows everything about that. So I'm confessing here a lot about just part of who I am and how I get to be the way I am. So I love sports. And, um, and, I, and I've enjoyed watching my, my kids play sports. My older son, not nearly as athletic as my younger son, and, but he's played four years of soccer at Shawnee, and it's fun to watch him play. He's a senior now, and so it's fun to watch him play, although he's not very good. But he gets to play because it's like four, he's played four years, and so he's getting to play a lot, and he has a good time, and it doesn't mean too much to him. You know, if they lose, he walks off the field and looks like it, everything's okay. He, he's got it in, the, in balance, and I enjoy watching him. And I'm not sitting there like, it's fun. But my younger son, he's better, and it seems like it means more. So he gets to play on much better teams. He, he plays basketball, which is my, what I enjoy the most. And so he plays on a team that's really good, in, in a seventh grade team in Oklahoma. Well, you know how this goes. Most of the tournaments now, outside, not talking about school tournaments, talking about like AAU tournaments that they play, are Saturday, Sunday. And there's no respect for Sunday morning. They'll start playing at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. Tournament directors want to get the games over early in the day on Sunday. They used to, even when he was younger, you'd get a lot of games not start until 1. And so my wife is a magician because Emmanuel Shawnee has like three services. One starts at like 8 o'clock in the morning. So she's able to manage the service usually. <laughs> Uh, so he still gets to church and still makes the games. She has to do more of that because I'm doing stuff like this. But I wrestle with it. Because what message are you sending to him when you're always rearranging your worship so he can play on this team that's a really good team? And if he can't be there for stuff, they'll get somebody else to play. There's lots of kids who want to play on So... What do you do with that? You want to give your kid the best chance? You want him to play on the best he can play? Uh, you want to give him every opportunity possible? And yet, now I'm confessing my own. Um, if, if we could pass the mic around, you know, some other folks might say, yep, here's mine. So it's, it's a struggle. And what happens when you value youth sports over your worship of the one true God. Well, you've exchanged a spring of living water for a broken cistern. And I have no illusion that Levi's going to play in the NBA. He's going to be 5'10 and have all my deficiencies. Now, he's got all his good things come from his mother. She was the really good basketball player. So he's really good at some things. But did you hear what I said? He's going to be 5'10. And he's going to look a lot like me, which means he's going to be able to jump about that high off the ground. 
And you can only make so many three-pointers <laughs> that's before, the, before they say, no, you're too small, <laughs> you're too slow, and you can't jump. So we're going to get the kid in here who can do all that. So he's going to be fine in 2A Dale. But I got no illusions of anything. Now, we don't tell him that yet, but uh, you know, we let him dream about whatever he wants. But I, I'm no, I have no illusions about what, where this is headed in the end. And yet it just feels so important. So, uh, God help us. Now, go down to verse 32. Does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Back to the picture of a bride, of a woman. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. I mean... How many ways can he say, you're an adulterous prostitute, worshiping other gods? He's, he's coming at it with so many different images that it just, it, it, you can't avoid it. You can't miss it. On your clothes is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I'm innocent. He's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say I've not sinned. Now, go to chapter 3, verse 1. This is the end of this section. It goes through 3, 5. Now, it's like he's portrayed Israel as like an unfaithful bride, even a prostitute. Now, he's going to use the D word. D-I-V-O-R-C-E. To quote Tammy Wynette. If you're old enough to know who that is. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me? Now think of that prophetic image. Have you heard that somewhere before? How about the whole book of Hosea? Now Hosea is written to the northern kingdom it's written during the, during the Assyrian crisis. It's a completely different crisis and a completely different time in Israel's uh, history. This is later. This is Judah. But the hearts of the people are very similar. And, and so now, Hosea has talked in this way about the northern kingdom. Now, Jeremiah is talking about the southern kingdom, Judah. Verse 2. Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you've not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. You have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. How about that image? Of people that have become so adulterous that they just have no shame left. Things that you should be ashamed of, no shame, no blush. And uh, verse 4, Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. So you get the picture. Uh, not much hope there. He's not... He's not telling them you need to repent. It's just indictment. This is like, if you think about a lawsuit, here's God bringing his lawsuit against them. Now, I just want you to pause for a moment 
and think about preaching that sermon for 40 years. What if Owen got up every Sunday and just hammered you as prostitutes, spiritual adulterers? You'd, you'd probably at some point say, can't you get on to something more positive? Can't we talk about things a bit, a bit more optimistic about the future? And, and, and he, Jeremiah's going to do a little bit of that, but he just keeps coming back to this because they're not really responding to his calls for repentance. And so um, I think you can start to see why the person who preaches like this day after day after day for 40 years will be called the weeping prophet. Now, if you're looking on the outline, you go to B, repent. Judah must return to her husband. So this picks up at chapter 3, verse 6. During the reign of King Josiah, so that dates this little section. That helps because a lot of times you don't know what the time orientation is. So Josiah rules from 640 to 609 B.C. So you're somewhere, and, and um, Jeremiah is not called until 627 B.C. So this is sometime between 627 and 605 B.C. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She's gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and committed adultery there, I thought, I thought that after she'd done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. So here he's talking about Israel, the northern kingdom's idolatry. And they've been wiped off the map. They don't even exist anymore at the time when he's saying this. And why do they no longer exist? Because of their idolatry, because of their disobedience. The Assyrians had already just wiped them off the map. There's not even a northern kingdom anymore. And he says, you southern kingdom, you looked up and saw all that judgment that came upon the northern kingdom. And he compares them to like sisters, unfaithful sisters. And yet, you don't return. You just keep doing the same thing. She wouldn't, he said, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. Verse 8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce. And sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land, committed adultery with stone and wood. You know, fashioning idols out of stone and wood. That would have been the most common kind of idols. Take a piece of stone, take a piece of wood fashion an image out of it, maybe ears and eyes on it, and then worship it like it's a deity. Call it Baal. Um, verse 10, In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. Verse 11, The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. Go down to verse 14. Now this is a more general call. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. 
It will never enter their minds or be remembered that it, it will not be missed, nor will, any, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. So what's this? It's the call that if you will repent, if you will return to me, if you will come back to me and be faithful to me, then I will bless you. I will bring you back to the land that you're about to lose. I will settle you back in this land. And, and now and everybody will see that you're my people, but you need to repent and return. Verse 20. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you Israel have been unfaithful to me. Verse 22. Return, faithless people. I will cure your backsliding. Go down to chapter 4, verse 1. If you Israel will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you've done. Burn with no one to quench it. So it's, it's not over yet. Their, their fate is not sealed at the time Jeremiah is preaching here. It's return to me and I'll return to you. Return, get rid of these idols, get them out of the land, swear that you'll not go back to worshiping them, and I will bless you. So there's hope here in this call to repentance. If you, Israel, will return, if you will return to me, then I will return to you. Now, 4-5 is, is a new section where Judah refuses to repent. And so judgment from the north is coming. That's what this whole section is about. So if you think it was bad before, it, it gets no better in this section. You really have to wait to about chapter 30 before you get any real light that comes in to the scene. But verse 5. So this is 4, 5, chapter 4, verse 5, through chapter 6, verse 30. And on the outline, this is C, the coming judgment from the north. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. Now, flip back to chapter 1, the call passage. We didn't, we didn't uh, get it into this section this morning. But look at chapter 1, verse 13. Even in the call to Jeremiah, you see the coming judgment. Verse 13. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting to us from the north. And there's more there, but that's the heart of it. So now you start to see this image of some danger coming from the north, like a boiling pot that's tilted. Isn't that an image of like wrath that's about to be poured out? And so here, 
at chapter 4, back to chapter 4, verse 6, I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. Look at verse 9. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart, the priests will be horrified, and the prophets will be appalled. Not the true prophets, the false prophets. Because what you don't know yet is that alongside Jeremiah, who's telling them the truth, and the truth is, if you don't repent, judgment's coming. The pot is already boiling and it's tilted in our direction. The time's running out to repent, to get rid of our idolatry, to do justice in our midst, to take care of the least among us. The time's running out. And that's the truth. And if we don't repent, the judgment's coming and it'll be long and it'll be hard. And while Jeremiah is preaching that hard message, all the false prophets are saying, Oh no, peace, peace. It's all good. God would never use some pagan nation from the north to come down and judge his own people. Nothing to worry about here. And we have the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, so we can run there for safety. God's not going to do anything to his temple. And, here, and it's here in Jerusalem, so he's never going to let the pagans come in and tear that down. So you got all these false prophets telling the people exactly what they want to hear. So guess which prophets they favor? Yeah, the false ones. And how much harder does that make Jeremiah's ministry? Because he's telling them the truth. You can't judge the truthfulness of a prophet by popularity polls. Because often the truth is not going to be popular. And that's certainly the situation, I think, here. And I'm just going to pick, hunt and pick through some of this. Um, verse, 16, verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14. Jerusalem, watch, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? A voice is announcing from Dan. Now, Dan was part of the northern kingdom. In fact, that was the northernmost part of the northern kingdom. Now, what's the image? The Babylonians are coming. This way, I guess. Depends on where you're looking. But the Babylonians are coming from the east. And when they came down to Judah, they'd have to go through the, what had been the northern kingdom. Now, that's already been wiped out. But they would come through what was the northern kingdom. So the first area they'd come through is what was Dan. That would be the farthest northernmost part of the northern kingdom so he's picturing the enemy coming down from the north a voice is announcing from dan proclaiming disaster from the hills of ephraim so coming down ephraim's just another way to say the northern kingdom so the the enemy's getting closer and closer then the babylonians this threat from the north this boiling pot is getting closer and closer tell this to the nations proclaim, uh, proclaim concerning jerusalem a besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. Look at verse 19. Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. You see that in verse 19? My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I've heard the sound of the trumpet. I've heard the battle cry. Now the question is, who's saying that? Because you've got two options. It's not Judah, because they, they, they're not even buying that there's any trouble coming. They think God's not going to do anything to them. 
So it's either Jeremiah or it's God. And you might say, well, I, don't, I, don't, I can't see God being that upset about what Israel does. And I want to come back and say, really? It looks like it breaks God's heart. If the image of a husband and, and, and the unfaithfulness of his wife, if, if there's anything that resembles in that the, God, God's relationship to his people when they've been unfaithful, then yes, it stings. And I don't think it's out of, out of the question to say this reflects God's agony at his people's idolatry. But my guess is Jeremiah could say the same thing. So maybe there's a dual voice here. That it's, it's God who, who is in anguish, but it also reflects Jeremiah. Go down to verse 23. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and void. Hmm. Does that language sound familiar? I looked at the earth, and it was formless and void. That formless and void language, where do you get that? In the creation account, right? So it, what he's going to do here, it's as if Israel, or Judah, technically Judah, Judah's idolatry is so great, and it has such cosmic uh, consequences. It's not just what it's going to do to a you know, few thousand people in Judah. The consequences are so great, it's like the creation is in reverse. It's like the, 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 if creation is sort of bringing order to the chaos, well, the, the chaos is returning, and there's no order. I looked at the earth, it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. What, what did God say? Let there be light? Well, now the light's gone. It's like every element of creation is going away. I looked at the mountains, they were quaking, at the hills, they were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Well, what had God done in creation? He had created man and woman. Every bird in the sky had flown away. God had created the birds, and now they're no more. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. This is what the Lord says, The whole land will be ruined, though I will not completely destroy it. But sometimes we feel like maybe our sinfulness is just my own. And even, even a nation could say, Well, we're just, we're just this one nation. And, and sin's bigger than that. There are consequences for the whole creation uh, when, when we sin and when we, we violate God's law. And that's what he's trying to picture here. Verse 30. What are you doing, you devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourselves in vain. Your lovers despise you. They want to kill you. Here's more of that idolatrous image. But he's saying you worship these idols, and these idols, they don't care about you. I hear a cry as of a woman in labor. Now for me, this is the, this is the most poignant image so far. I hear a cry as of a woman in labor, a groan as of one bearing her first child. The cry of daughter Zion gasping for breath stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I am fainting or I am dying. My life is given over to murderers. 
What often happens when people commit adultery? Woman gets, is going to have a baby. Well, here's the picture of Judah pregnant now because of her idolatry. And she's giving birth to a child and it's killing her. She's giving birth to murderers. How about that for an image? He takes the, the spiritual adultery image just one step further now. It's as if now unfaithful Judah has become pregnant because of her adultery. And what she gives birth to is killing her. Murderers. Um, these prophets, they didn't have PowerPoint. They didn't have chalkboards or whiteboards. or They didn't use megaphones. Man, they used word pictures. And a lot of these things are just paint a picture that it's, it's hard to even get out of your, your head. You almost feel like now, even reading it, you almost need to apologize. Like, man, I'm sorry this is so graphic. Um, I don't get Jeremiah feeling the need to apologize to, to help them understand how awful uh, their spiritual idolatry, their spiritual adultery is. Um, go now to verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I'll forgive this city. Does that remind you of Abraham pleading for Sodom? You know, if you if they find 50 and he keeps coming down, you, and, and you wish he just kept on going because surely he could have found one righteous. But he says, if I can just find one person, then I'll forgive the city. Uh, let's go all the way over to about verse 21. Well, no, no, verse 18. Let's start at verse 18. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, why has the Lord our God done all this? You'll tell them. As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. Now, the gods they were worshiping were Assyrian gods. Or, now the Babylonians had defeated the Assyrians. So they're worshiping these foreign gods, and it's going to be those very foreigners, Babylon, who's going to come and punish them and carry away Israelites to Babylon. So you've worshipped these foreign gods in your own land, now I'm going to take you to those foreign lands where you'll serve the foreigners, the Babylonians. You get that image? You want to serve these gods of these foreign peoples, these pagan peoples? Well, then I'll just take you to their land and you can serve them. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see and ears but do not hear. What has eyes and can't see and ears but can't hear? They're idols. You fashion a little idol out of wood or stone. You put eyes on it, put ears on it, but it can't hear. It can't see. So what's he saying? You're becoming like your idols. You can't see or hear. You're spiritually blind. You can't hear my call to repent. You're becoming like your idols, which is a scary thing. Now, uh, we're going through chapter 6. Yeah, let's, uh, I know, we got three minutes here, according to my estimation. I know you can smell the food. Let's finish up 
six here. I'm not going to read all of it. Um, let's just go to verse 13. False prophets and false priests. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. That's the second time he's used that language. Verse 20. Why do I care about incense from Sheba or sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable to me. Your sacrifices do not please me. And we'll stop with that one, but I'll, I'll tell you why that's important. Because there are three areas that the prophets just hammer with God's people, their sin. First is idolatry. And I think it points to the kinds of problems that God's people will perpetually have. Idolatry. Worshiping, prioritizing other things higher than the one true God. Second is a lack of justice among us. Um, how do you treat the least among you? How, do you? how vigorously do you stand up for uh, the most vulnerable those who are most at risk. And uh, I always like to, I, don't, I try not to be too critical of denominations or people who are outside of my own. So I, I tend to think in terms of Baptists, Southern Baptists, because I, I are one. Um, I think Southern Baptists really make an effort in a lot of areas that are commendable. I think we do a really good job uh, of advocating for uh, the unborn. I mean, I feel like that's an issue that we keep pretty front burner. I know we only have one Sanctity of Life day and the uh, like Sunday on the calendar year, but, but I feel like that's an issue we, we advocate for. I know lots of Southern Baptists who will not vote for a candidate in any election if they are supportive of Planned Parenthood or of abortion rights. So, I'm thumbs up there. There's, there's one where I think we do. I think that we're, we're making great st strides in terms of racial reconciliation. I think, I think we're trying hard uh, to do what's right in that area. Um, but there are other areas where I think we, we need to sort of fill in and see as an important issue also. So what he keeps talking about, what the prophets keep talking about, these justice issues, it's often... The orphan, Baptists do, do a pretty good job there of promoting foster care and uh, adoption. Uh, orphan, the widow, which would be someone at risk, and the immigrant. And, and that's one where I wish we would, we would do more. I, I'm afraid we, we let a little bit of our nationalism drive our, our ideas about immigrants. I understand an, a national policy about immigration, but my citizenship is higher than my American citizenship. And so I've got another question to ask, not what, just what's good for the United States. I have a bigger question as a citizen of the kingdom of God. What's right by human beings? 
And so if a person is trying to come to the United States who is facing violence, who is running from a situation that might lead to such great poverty that they can't even provide for their family, I must think differently about that as a Christian than I might just as a citizen of the United States. And that should affect the way I think about that policy. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, it's not important that I'm American, but I at least ought to think about the issue as that's a human being, and how can I best advocate for the best possible scenario for that human being? I think we do really good with some of those life issues, and somehow then, I don't think we see that as a life issue. We just see that as a sort of a national policy issue. I wish we'd think more deeply, because when you look at the prophets, they often talk about the immigrant. Now, I don't know what word your translation is using. It might say alien, it might say foreigner. Uh, what's, what's the word here? Um, it's uh, foreigner is the one, the NIV says foreigner there at verse 6. What's your translation say? If you do not oppress the, give me the word, alien. See, we, what's an alien? We think that's somebody coming down in a spaceship. Um, of course, we're not going to oppress an alien coming down out of the space, but alien is another word for immigrants, somebody who has fled their land, fleeing their land to go to a different land. What else you have? You got anything? Say it again. Stranger. And what do you think when you hear stranger? Stranger danger. Now, look, I, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not advocating for just open borders, let anybody in. I'm saying we should think about how we treat those who show up at the border. That doesn't mean everybody gets in or everybody gets a path to citizenship. But there's got to be an element where we see people as human beings, not just before they're born, but after they're born. Um, well, you're probably mad at me now. I hope not. Uh, but uh, go get some chili and we'll feel better in a little while so how about we break right do we need to bless this food Jim well you want me to ask a blessing on it or did did uh, Owen already do that uh, let me do it just in case can't hurt to, can't hurt to bless it twice how about I do that Lord we're so grateful for the opportunity to study your word and we're so grateful for people who are hungry for your word but, Lord, we know our bodies also get hungry, and we thank you for those who prepared this dinner tonight. Bless it in your service. In the name of Christ, amen.